HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Good afternoon, Greenhorns. This is Severin. I'm your host for this yet another episode of Greenhorn Radio, uh, radio for young farmers by young farmers, discussing the uh, perplexities and joys of life in the young farming universe. Our show is brought to you on Heritage uh, Radio Network and sponsored by Hearst Family Ranch. I am interviewing Jarrett Mann of Stone Soup Farm in Massachusetts, uh, who is a wonderful young farmer. Are you there, Jarrett? I am here. Hello. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so I have been hearing about Stone Soup Farm, and um, I have been hearing that you have been on the Internet making videos about starting seeds, and I have been hearing that you were incubated by, a, by an incubator, and it sounds like you're up to a lot of big, big things. Maybe you could start us off with an introduction to Stone Soup Farm and uh, its core principles. Okay. Um, yeah, actually, Stone Soup wasn't incubated um, at any point, but I got my start um, at the New England Small Farms Institute, which has land which they uh, can give leaseholds to farmers or starting farmers, in my case. And the I started the farm to have more of an emphasis on the principles of community orientation and environmental respect and um, trying to create methods that would be good for the environment and good for the community, good for the people that are here and for the people that we sell food to, um, but also with a strong emphasis on being a, a real business. You know, it's a, it's a for-profit business still. And we need to make money to stay alive. And so we can't um, do anything ultimately that would stand in the way of that um, need to stay afloat financially. And you came to Stone Soup. You're the founder of Stone Soup. Is that right? Yeah. And you came from Red Fire Farm. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Your, tell, or here, here's another question. Tell us about your um, apprenticeship process and how you came to have um, this hard-nosed business approach to farming, which I commend you for, by the way. Um, uh, the apprenticeship process at yeah. Stone Soup, you mean? Yeah. Um, no, yeah. of your own self, of, of your own personal farming history. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, I did apprentice uh, myself at Red Fire Farm in Granby, Mass. For one season, I had had some experience at that point, um, and I learned quite a bit. And then I stayed on as the assistant manager of Red Fire Farm for another year after that, and um, continued to learn at a pretty good clip. And by the end of those two years, I felt pretty confident that I could go off and start my own. I knew enough. Um, I come from a science background, so I'm very inquisitive and um, I can find solutions to a lot of problems pretty quickly and efficiently. And that was also very important, I think. And so, I so what is your it. hypothesis as to the um, reason why there are so many farmers such as yourself popping out after a few years of apprenticeship and farm management experience and wanting to start their own farm. What do you, um, to what do you attribute this trend? Well, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's the fad. I'm not placing myself outside of that. I think it's, um, it's a social movement. It's something that people are excited about. They think is really rad and um, viable. You know, it's interesting that there are these new CSA farms and, and small local farms that are um, becoming viable now when they haven't been for a generation. And I think it's not the same people who would have been farming in the past. It's mostly uh, educated people who are entrepreneurs, really, um, most of the small farms that are starting are not, the farmer was not um, inheriting that farm. And in most cases, their parents and probably grandparents didn't farm. And that was true for me. Um, there is, you know, practically no farming in my background. And it's something that I think is usually come to not from a perspective of wanting to farm exactly, but that there are a lot of social movements such as local food, community orientation, and environmentalism that, um, that farming can really address in a very pragmatic way. And, and in that sense, farming is for those kinds of people like me um, a means to an end. It is not the ultimate goal. And so how did someone like you, who didn't have a farm in their family, or even any farmers in the family, manage to gain access to the land that you currently farm? Um, the land that I currently farm was um, held by the Small Farms Institute here, which does a lot of things, one of which is they hold land and they want to have different farmers on the land. Um, they had it available when I... I actually went looking to them um, through a different program they have called LandLink, where they sort of match up people who have land with people who are looking for land. And they kind of pulled me in and said, well, actually, you know, we have land ourselves, and um, 
we we were looking for a small community oriented farm to hopefully come here. Uh, so I got the gig and um, somehow convinced them that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and it turns out that I knew at least just enough of what I was doing to make it happen. <laughs> um, but I've been going good now. And um, in fact, I'm looking for other pieces of land uh, in the general area that I can expand onto. So you're currently growing on how many acres? It's about eight right now, Um, but eight very intensively managed vegetable acres, and that produces, we do mostly CSA shares, it produces enough for about 200 families. It's kind of a lot. You guys are how big of a crew? The crew ranges from just me in the middle of the winter to about probably six, sometimes seven, in the middle of the summer. We have three apprentices this year and two part-time people who have previous agriculture experience. I've also got a few work shares, people who come in and put in a day a week for their share, for their CSA share. We have had some volunteers, some woofers. Um, wow, a whole day of work for a CSA share. That's that's a good deal for the farmer, it seems like. Yeah, they put in a whole day of work for three months to get five months of share. So it's... it's um. If you broke it down, it would probably be a little more than a half a day of work per share. It is. um, You know, the work shares can be difficult. Um, All volunteers can be difficult. I I try not to base the farm's labor on volunteerism, not because I want to discourage it, but because um, it's really important, you know, the, the intensive nature of small vegetable operations um, makes them vulnerable to labor shortages and volunteers tend to be less reliable and I have found that it is better off to base the entire system on um, paid labor even when there is quite a bit of volunteer um, help offered and when the volunteers come that's great and they can help out and they get shown around and they have fun um, but they just don't, they don't commit, and um, I don't think it makes sense to, to, to rely on volunteers at any point. Well, I think it's a similar, it sounds like a similar lesson to your first statement about being a financially viable farm. There's only so much you can expect people to do for the love of it. Yeah, that's right, and they, they do, and they come, and sometimes you have really good volunteers, it's the the work shares we have this year, which are sort of volunteers but sort of not, have been great. And I think that that's a really positive thing for people to be able to do if they want. Um, but we've had some that are not so great, and they peace out after a couple of days. So um, lesson to those listeners who are thinking about volunteering on a farm is uh, would be what show up early, 
don't flake out and wear a hat, what else do we <laughs> add to that list? <laughs> yeah, those are all perfectly good pieces of advice. I don't know. I don't know that there's anything to do, you know. If you're a volunteer, you are reserving the right not to come back. And that's fine. I don't see any problem with it. But, um, you know, as a farmer, I need to make sure that there is plenty of paid staff. So you obviously benefited tremendously from having had a relationship with a service provider, in this case, the Small Farm Institute, which, you know, I thought that they had incubated your farm, but um, but they didn't do that, but they did um, hook you up with land, and they hooked Red Fire Farm up with land. One of the things that Green Horse has been working on lately is um, crafting a chapter on our advice to beginning farmers on how to be the most um, effective, um, um, like customers of the service providers, or, or sorry, the word that I was looking for is clients, and how to like march into your FSA office and have your um, shit together enough that you're um, going to make a compelling case to them for capital, and how to approach your extension officer um, and the local nonprofit that could help you um, overcome various hurdles that inevitably throw themselves into the pathways of um, young agrarians. Would you say that you, you're coming from a science background, would you say that the academic um, career that you had before farming prepared you for dealing with the various agencies um, that you had to deal with in setting up your own operation or have any relevant advice on this topic? Uh, yes and no. Um, I went to liberal arts college and a high school that was very sort of similar to a liberal arts college. And in those types of settings, they think they, they teach you how to think. And I think that's probably the most important skill you can have. This, this kind of small farms that we are seeing pop up don't really resemble um, farms in, in history, and there's not a lot to draw from. Um, and so you kind of have to be on your toes and you have to be active and you have to be thinking about what you're doing. Um, you know, as with most farming, the profit margin is relatively slim. And if you are not effective at what you do, you'll probably end up not doing it soon. Um, but that being said, um, I did get some... You know, my background in science, and, and um, I did soil science and microbe and plant sciences, has helped to some degree. Um, there is some component of farming which is, you know, knowledge-based. Do you know what you need to know about this plant or this disease or that insect or this system? Um, but I think another really big part of it is uh, like a green thumb. Do you have a green thumb? And can you intuit what's going on in a fairly complex system like a farm? Can you tell what a plant wants? Can you tell if a, the soil is providing at a rate that you would like it to? And some of those things have science answers, and some of them have answers that are more uh, based on your personal philosophy 
and your personal sense of what you want your farm or what how you think is um, appropriate to farm. I think those those all those things sort of play in together. So I'm not discounting the the background and the and ed- education that I have, but it's also a lot of stuff on your feet. And you're still presumably learning, and and you're, it sounds like you want to grow the business bigger than it already is. All by are you all by yourself running this operation? I mean, in terms of the management. Yeah. No, I don't have any uh, um, management partners. Um, you know, I want to grow the farm a little bit. I don't want it to be huge. But like you said, um, I am learning every day. Absolutely. Some stuff is uh, explicit learning, and some stuff is sort of subtle experiential learning that comes in time. But I, I love it, and um, absolutely, I'm quite cognizant that I am still learning, that there is so much about farming that is not obvious, that takes concentration and patience to learn um, and a lot of what I learn also has to do with the people that work here the people that eat the food and the community in general learning to run a business and run a business particularly in this case that people are sort of looking to for um, something in their minds about how things should be and you know you can go out and buy a camera or something and it's not it doesn't really make a statement but when people choose how they eat and choose which farms they're buying from they are doing something that they believe in they are making um a, a somewhat more conscious decision and they're looking to sort of satisfy some idea that they have by that choice. And so it's important to to be cognizant of that kind of mood, the general mood of the public. And right now it's it's fairly um engaged, it's fairly supportive. People want to support small farmers. They want to feel like they are supporting farms that are good to the land and good to their people and good to um the environment as a whole. And that's what we do. Um, but it sounds like it, it, and I, you know, in your case and in, in many cases, it really demands of the farmer a certain uh, type of uh, behavior and kind of posture in the community. Like you're, you, you, there's a certain like spirit that's demanded of that role. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's easy to 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 run out and use a lot of buzzwords, and I think that the uh, the the movement as a whole, the local food movement, which would start using buzzwords like organic and sustainable, and um, I think it's really good on the whole. I really do, and I am part of that movement, and I've chosen a career that is 
completely engulfed in that movement. I also try to take a stance of moderation and um, acknowledge that to some extent compromises on a farm must be made. Um, in order for it to stay viable, we still have to burn some diesel fuel sometimes for our tractors, and we still have to, um, you know, I'm not paying my employees $60,000 a year, even though they're working really hard. And there's compromises like that. And I, I want to temper the kind of enthusiasm that we see in our culture right now with these ideas of, of compromise and that not everything can be summed up in these buzzwords, but that life on the ground is somewhat more complex and interesting. And um, I think that what I worry about is that the high-pitched fervor of the movement as it is now is capable of burning itself out like a fad. And it doesn't seem like that right now because we're on the rise. More and more people are aware of these issues every day. More and more big in, you know, industries are trying to sort of hop on the bandwagon of green. And I think that part of sustainability, if I may use that word, is not just... Um, trying to stop spraying and trying to provide better food and better um, environments for the employees, but it also has to be financial sustainability because if a small farm is spending too much of its time, uh, you know, doing something that a larger farm is mechanized, and, and accomplishing much more efficiently than the small farm is ultimately going to lose out in the market. And, uh, so it sounds like a, that, a posture or uh, um, a role that you're finding yourself wanting to fill as a farmer and as uh, someone that folks in your community are looking to for answers on these kinds of questions is one of temperance and authenticity. And um, a certain a certain point, it really sounds like you're really you're saying, um, please lessen your expectations, um, or or transform them into something that's that's like slower and more durable. Is that, yeah, is that yeah. What I'm hearing. Exactly. Um, you know, a lot of the small farms are really sort of like craft growers, and they produce this really really beautiful product, and it's very expensive. And some people, you know, there's a culture of people that are willing to pay that, and that's totally fine. But I think on the whole, if, we're, if we want to look at the big scale, if we really want to transition our food system um, to, to a system that produces a lot of food without a lot of, say, pesticides or many of the other things that big industrial farms tend to do, but that we're looking to try to move away from, you have to accept blemishes. You have to lower your standards. And... You know, Stone Soup Farm produces a lot of really good food, food, and some of it is totally beautiful, um, but some of it's not. Sometimes you get holes in the leaves, and sometimes you find a worm in your corn. And 
I think CSA is a brilliant movement because you, the, the, the CSA members stick with a farm and it becomes their friend. It becomes a relationship. And in that sense, they don't, they're not as judgmental on a single product and they will talk their, their, their level of tolerance for what a farm can really produce in a sustainable manner is much higher. And I really think, um, CSA is, it really has transformed the way this movement is going. And I think the best thing people can do to really support good agricultural practices is to do your research, look it up, look up a bunch of different CSA farms in your area and choose the one that you think is the most responsible. Um, Choose the one that you feel represents your values and buy directly well, from and them. To our, to our audience who are mostly farmers, it sounds really like you're encouraging folks to tune into what they themselves are interested in working on. I mean, you're interested in 200 families and seven or eight and then more acres, and you're into affordable food. I mean, it, and, and that's a decision that you got to make for yourself, which is, which is cool and great. Um, and that other people might make different decisions or they might go in different directions. Um, and it's all obviously part of the same program. But, yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, did, I forgot that um, the show is mostly for farmers or or people looking to be farmers. I think well, in that sense... Well, it's unfortunate that, that we live our lives surrounded by eaters and not necessarily always surrounded by farmers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, it's a to, to run a farm is a compromise between what you really believe in and what is feasible. And I live in uh, extremely progressive Massachusetts, and I can get away with a lot, and I can pretty much build the farm that I want, and I have to make some compromises for what um, the general public wants, but I'm, I think, pretty fortunate that there's support in my area for for the kind of farming that I'm willing to do. I think, though... Is there room it, for more farms? Yeah, there is room as long as uh, the demand continues to rise. And it, it is rising. Um, again, like I said, I'm worried that that demand could plateau off and drop at some point like a fad would do, but I'm not sure if or when it would happen. For now, though, um, I still believe that most farms have uh, waiting lists. There is more demand than supply, at least in my area and from some other areas that I've heard of. So this, um, this is an interview of Jarrett Mann on Stone Soup Farm in Massachusetts. Uh, you are accepting applications for apprentices next year or, or not? Yeah, well, uh, probably later on in the season, but I'm certainly willing to um, talk to anyone who's interested right now. So if anybody's interested to think ahead for the next season and see a farm in full swing and... Um, Meet Jared uh, when the farming that he's doing isn't an abstract and figure out what you're doing. Maybe it would be a good time to swing over there. 
I, I had a remembrance that you guys have a um, big um, festival event. Is that coming up? Chili Fest. Chili Fest, that's it. Yeah, well, that's, um, I think it's the 21st or the 22nd. It's a Saturday, probably the third Saturday in August. Um, yeah, it's a big, free, fun festival that we have at the farm, and we have chili cook-off and hay rides, and we grow a billion different types of exotic chili peppers that are on display. It's a good time. So um, for all you chili fans, head on over to Chili Fest. The info is up on the website, and uh, I'll leave you with that. I thank you so much for um, coming with us on the radio, Jared, and for sticking it out there in um, hot, hot Massachusetts. <laughs> Thank you. This has been yet again an episode of Greenhorns Radio, brought to you by Hearst Family Ranch. Uh, if you don't already know about all the summertime events and fall events of Greenhorns, they're taking place almost every two weeks or something. So get on our website and check it out. Thank you all for doing what you're doing. Bye-bye. Be all right. If you look brown, stick around. But as you black.